Today's episode is brought to you by Single Store, the single database for all data-intensive applications. To learn more or to sign up for a free trial, visit singlestore.com. All right, joining me today is Jordan, who's the Chief Product Officer of Single Store, and uh, hopefully he's going to teach us a little bit about databases and all things that are going on. But Jordan, as we were just talking, we have some mutual friends in common, and I was reaching out to get some information about yourself and your company, and they said, they said, ask Jordan about the time he was offered a kilo of caviar in St. Petersburg. So let's let's start there. What's the story? What happened? Sure. No, I, you know, I think... Uh... It's good. First of all, good to be here, and, and thank you for having me on. Uh, second of all, I'm trying to figure out who this person would have been that uh, that that as that mentioned that story. But I went to I went to St. Petersburg on my honeymoon. We my, both my wife and I are big fans of Russian literature and Russian culture, and thought it would be romantic to go and uh, be in you know in in St. Petersburg in the winter and uh, trudge around in the snow. And, you know, as we were walking through one of the main the main squares, uh, a guy comes up to us. I mean, first of all, we had a lot of caviar, you know, caviar and vodka <laughs> in St. Petersburg, which is, you know, uh, when in when in Russia, you know, <laughs> that's what you caviar do and, uh-huh. and vodka. But uh, we were walking through main square and somebody is like walking by and like had this giant tin of of uh, of caviar and was like, hey, do you want to buy some caviar? And like, no, 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 no. And because what am I going to do with a kilo of caviar? Like, uh <laughs> I like it and all, but that's that's a that's a lot, and the price kept going down as we're walking. And one of the the lesson I think I learned was if you really don't want something, then that's that's your best negotiating position because we got him down to like twenty dollars for a kilo of caviar, which you know would be something like I don't know many thousands of dollars uh, if it wasn't from some dude in a backpack. Wow. Wow. So I don't know. Is this a common, like, you know, people are offered lots of things on the street, of course, lots of illegal <laughs> things. We won't get into all that, but is this something that's common or in, in Russia or is this just a random, somebody came across this and needed to turn it into, I guess, rubles or cash or whatever pretty quick. I think we look like the kind of people that would really like caviar. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, that's, that's, that's crazy. Well, that's pretty cool though. I, that's, I have never uh, been to Russia, so I can't say I've, uh, had it had any, but I've had some uh, vodka with Russians, and they they do enjoy their vodka. So they I didn't. Take it I don't, pretty seriously. <laughs> well, more importantly, can you tell the difference between this really expensive vodka and like the I guess the average the normally priced? Because I'm I'm every time, and I've been with people that that swear, and they like they're buying it, and it's great, and they're telling me how great it is, and I always just feel at the end like I'm always very polite, and I thank them, but I'm like I I don't know, I don't I was lost on me. So are you are you an expert in it? Can you taste the difference? No, I can't. But my understanding is the difference between good vodka, good vodka and bad vodka is the quality of the hangover. <laughs> well, that's probably, you know, there's a lot of things in life that we could say about that. So true. All right. Well, good. Well, good to know uh, for all everyone listening. If you're ever in St. Petersburg, be on the lookout for someone selling a pound of caviar. And I will re- reveal my sources. It's uh, Sardarth uh, Neju. He oh, lives here yeah. in Austin, Texas. And it, I mean, out of just a weird coincidence, his son goes to school with my son. And so oh, I asked him guy. for some stories about you. And he <laughs> said that. And I think if I'm not wrong, I think you, you all uh, did you author a book together or something yeah, on BigQuery? Is that right? He and I co-authored the first book on BigQuery together. And I think that's like a perfect intro into, I think you've done a lot of stuff in your career and uh, we know you're at single store store now, but uh, I thought it was a good place to start. Like, you know, before, you know, you kind of got there, it looks like you were at Google as a, looks like a, got all the way up to engineering director and then product management. Uh, but like, tell me the story. How did you get to Google? And then more importantly, how did you get involved in Google or BigQuery? So I'd been working at startups for the last for the previous few years and never wanted to work at a big company again. You know, I just got my started my career at Microsoft and did some interesting stuff there, but just love the fast paced uh, startup, love the fact that, you know, engineers with ideas could get stuff done. And I interviewed at Google just because it was good practice. And when I was there, like there was just something, some energy about it that, uh, that I just sort of fell in love with. And it was also the kind of place where engineers with an idea could make things happen. And that's really what happened with, with the start of BigQuery is when a couple of us were pulled off of, other projects and the the site director said hey we want you to go build a data marketplace and it was a huge team for google standards at the time there were i think there were six of us maybe maybe seven of us 
And, you know, because back then, you know, they were like, well, Gmail was done by six people. And so anything that's, you know, less smaller in scope than Gmail should be a smaller team. Wow. And we decided actually that we were going to build something different that we were going to build. A, because if you're going to have a data marketplace, you know, for large data sets, you don't want to just download the data. You want to have something you can do with it. And so we said, well, you know, SQL is relationally complete, meaning you can compute anything that can be that can be computed. It's just not it's not Turing complete, which is which is nice if you're going to charge per query because it, it will always terminate. Um, and, you know, we wanted to, to, to you know, the idea was we wanted to push the compute to the data rather than the data to the compute. So the compute stays in Google's cloud. We we sell a query engine on top of it. And uh, and you can you know then eventually we can build this data marketplace, but we never got around to the data marketplace part. It was always like a quarter away for something <laughs> like ten years. Well, what's the um, were you? I assume were you challenged internally? Like, did you have like your own need to do something like this? And that's where you know you kind of assembled this team. Like, where did the where did someone say, "Hey, this is what we want to build"? Where did that original problem come from? So, it, you know to. You know, Google had built this query engine called Dremel and, you know, this large scale distributed query engine. And, you know, so when, you know, the BigQuery team was started, we we had, you know, a pick of a couple of different query engines at Google. Like at Google, they, you know, they build a lot of different interesting technologies and it was one of like four or five different query engines. It was it was the best one. And we we, you know, we made the right call with that. But there was, you know, there was you know, a lot of people at Google that were doing some of the same things that people then ended up using BigQuery for, you know, they had, you know, analytics on, on large data sets and, you know, were able to get, you know, much faster answers about, about their data than kind of anybody could do elsewhere. Kind of the the state of the art elsewhere was really Hadoop was, was just gaining steam. And, you know, we were, you know, orders of magnitude faster than faster than Hadoop, and then BigQuery obviously evolved into something a lot more than just a, a, a query engine or something that was an accelerator accelerated version of Hadoop. But that's sort of some of the early days. Uh, it you know, it took a while for us to, it to sort of snowball into a fully fla- full fledged data platform. Nice. Thanks. Now I can't remember the history, and I was trying to look this up beforehand. Was was this all predating, I guess, you know, Google Cloud Platform or GCP? Was BigQuery like, like I don't know, I almost think of it as like part of that world now, but was this completely separate from GCP as we think of it today? So many of the services that then became GCP were all started about the same time by the same site director, Brian Brashad, in uh, on the same floor of the same office in, in the Seattle building, or in the Seattle uh, Google office. And we were a little bit kind of out on the hinterlands because like the, uh, you know, people didn't really trust the idea of cloud and doing infrastructure as a service at Google. And so we kind of were, but being on, being kind of up in Seattle, we were left to our own devices and we started <laughs> building this stuff, you know, so Google Compute Engine, uh, Google Cloud Storage, uh, you know, BigQuery were there, Dataflow was also, was also there. And, you know, so a lot of that came from, you know, some pretty small, pretty small teams, you know, large teams by Google standards at the time, but pretty small teams nowadays. Nowadays, there's an entire Google Cloud campus in Sunnyvale with like with several skyscrapers. And just it's you know, sort of funny to think of a lot of that, you know, all got started, um, you know, out of the second floor of the, uh, the Waterside building uh, in uh, in Seattle. That's interesting. That's some like good little trivia there. I did not know it was all, I didn't know it was all in Seattle. I guess I'd heard some of that. So interesting. Well, good. Well, now it's like you said, now I feel like it's like it's its own company, right? I mean, it's this massive, you know, thing inside of Google, right? Like, like all these things. And so, well, I know one of the things that's always interesting to hear about people's career transitions. So it looked like, you know, you're, you know, very technical. You started out um, really managing and building a lot of technology, but then, you know, it sounds like toward the end of your time at Google, you transitioned to product management. So what was the decision there and what was that transition like? Sure. Uh, I had always been, I think the whole BigQuery team had been very product centered and product oriented. We started out without product managers or, you know, with very, very minimal product management and kind of had to figure out what what to build, why to build, connect with customers, build feedback loops with customers. And, you know, so as we grew and started becoming more 
product driven and less engineering driven, I realized that a lot of the interesting problems were not on how do we, you know, how do we make this faster? How do we solve these technical problems? But what is it that we should be building? What do customers need? And kind of that led me towards towards the product side. And I'd been interviewing a bunch of people for the product management, for the product product management director role, uh, who was going to run BigQuery product management. And I kept being like, wow, if this per- this person just doesn't get it, if they if we hired them, that would be terrible. <laughs> and after a while, I'm like, huh, what if I what if I did the job? Like that sounded kind of crazy, but uh, you know, I. I um, yeah, I underestimated how hard it is to be a product manager. It was, it was, uh, it was a lot of learning and a lot of kind of new things being thrown at me very quickly. But uh, luckily, you know, I had a great team and you know a lot of great support and resources at Google, and you know that helped us make the transition. Plus, also it helped that I really I knew the product better than just about anybody because I had, you know, a helped create it and b written two books on, on it. And, you know, when, when you write a book on something, even if you kind of think you're familiar with it, you have to become even more, you know, deeply familiar with, with it. You know, some of the early, you know, the, the first book that I wrote with Siddharth that you, uh, that you mentioned, you know, some of the, the book actually served as a specification of what we were going to build because we were trying to like, uh, you know, uh, the stuff wasn't quite ready yet. It's like, well, it's in the book, so we got to do it this way. Wow, that's uh, that's really creating a, uh, a a set of requirements when you actually write it in a book and publish it, and you know you you know you've committed at that point. There's there's no going back on it. So, well, you mentioned, and I thought this uh, this is your tweet, so this is not me. Although I'm, I am certainly someone who spends a lot of time in product management and offering management. That you said, uh, you know, you kind of uh, maybe joined the dark side, or maybe people. Now I'll just say broadly, people said you joined the dark side. So, so I'm back to your question here: Is is product management truly the dark side or is it kind of as you went through is there some enlightenment on the other side of of this transition yeah but you know as you could kind of tell in uh in the the star wars movies the dark side's a lot more fun (laughs) it is true that is you know in some degrees it is true and you can like you said before um i think your point about like it's harder than people think i think that's that's really true and it's uh it's much easier to complain about product management than often do product management that's uh uh, that's really good. So, that's all right, well, good. That sounds like, you know, fantastic experience at uh, Google. So, you know, before we kind of get to some of the stuff you're doing now, I thought like it would be a, a good um, place to kind of pick your brain. I think, you know, Stephen uh, from Red Monk, he actually wrote something that I think you tweeted and we actually talked about it on the show. And it says a return to the, the general purpose database. And I'll put that link in and everyone can go read it. But to sum it up, I think, you know, he's making the point that I think a lot of us just in the industry have noticed, right? There are just so many kinds of databases now for so many different purposes that it's a little overwhelming. I find it a little, just keeping up, forget using them all, just like know what they are when people ask me about it. Um, and I think he's kind of putting forth that maybe it's time, right, to sort of rein that in a little bit. Uh, and I just, you know, given your expertise and all the things you've done, I wanted to get your take. Like, how do you kind of view the database market today? And, you know, is this trend kind of returning to a general database? Um, is it something that you're seeing in the market? Is it something that you think should happen? So when people create new technology or they create something new, it's because they there's a need that they believe exists that doesn't that that you can't get with with what you know the existing technology will let you do, and you know the proliferation of databases I think is is driven from that. If you have to have a separate analytics and tra- and transactions database, if you have to have a separate time series database, a separate uh, graph database, a separate uh, full text search database, all these things, you know, if you, nobody wants to, first of all, nobody sets out to create those because they think it's, they think it's fun. They set out to create them because they think there's a need and people use them because there's, because the existing technology won't do what they want to do. But I think also over time, the, you know, you, you take existing technologies and you can, you know, rather than having to kind of throw those away and do something else, you can, you can extend those to to be able to do more, and I think we're seeing that in the in the database industry, where you know where you once had you know multiple different databases because you needed them, you're 
you don't necess- you can have one database that can do if not everything then the vast majority of of the things that you want to do um and you know i think single store is a database that can that can do that uh you know i think it um it can do transactions um you know oltp transactions you know very low latency very fast very robustly acid you know etc uh, it can also do analytics, uh, large scale analytics can also do, you know, time series queries, full text search queries, um, semi-structure document style, document style queries. I mean, I think the, um, you know, the, the SQL versus no SQL is, is an interesting case of kind of what I was just describing because SQL, no, no SQL came about because, you know, people couldn't figure out a way to get relational databases to scale. And they said, okay, well, if I give up some of these things that I that I'm used to, if I give up, you know, being able to do, you know, relational operations, joins, and aggregations, um, and if I give up perhaps even some consistency, I can get, I can make it scale, and I can make it, I can make it low latency. And then there were, you know, they started to add some interesting things to it, like with semi-structured, et cetera. If you're not doing relational joins, then you can be a little bit more loosey goosey with your schemas. Um, I think on the same side, you, you, the same sort of thing you saw in the in the uh, the data warehousing case, where you know data warehouses were were not scaling, the physical data warehouses weren't scaling, so people were like, well, if I I, I can make them scale out by um, by doing you know, by doing MapReduce, um, but I have to give up I have to give up the fact that I understand what what is in my what is in my data set. I have to give up a lot of a lot in terms of performance, and I have to break things up into map and reduce phases, which is really a pain in the butt. Uh, wouldn't it be nicer to do SQL? And on the on the analytics side, you saw that um, you know the rise of the cloud data warehouses, that you know BigQuery, Snowflake, uh, Redshift, which which lets you kind of scale out really really nicely uh, and add SQL back. And so I think that you know having a great Data warehouse uh, that scaled killed effectively killed MapReduce, and I think on the on the transaction side we haven't necessarily seen the death of NoSQL yet, but I do believe that you know with kind of the new SQL databases uh, and databases that can basically uh, they they can scale and give you full access to SQL, you know you there you don't necessarily need these these NoSQL no SQL engines. And I think that, you know, so I'm not necessarily, it sounds like I'm predicting the, predicting the imminent demise of, uh, of things like Mongo and, and, uh, and CouchDB. And that's not necessarily what I'm, what I'm predicting because they've been able to evolve and they've been able to kind of demonstrate some, some, some additional utility. But I do think over time, the, the value of SQL is, is is immense, and I think the, those engines you're going to see. There's there's going to be a lot of pressure to to start retrofitting SQL on on top of them, and I think you've already they're already starting seeing some specialized languages, etc. But um, you know, you know, but also why not why not go with something that was that was designed as a scalable SQL engine? Right. Yeah. No. I think that's you know you bring up a lot of interesting points there, and I think as you were talking, I was thinking you know it's really not so much. Um, no SQL versus SQL because it's kind of back to like product management. It's always you know anytime you name your thing like you're the anti something. It's always that's like that's usually like a uh oh you're maybe doing it wrong. But because I think what people would say like if we were just sort of like turn that into like the old jobs to be done kind of framework. It's just like no like we we want something that performs at a high level and we and we'd like SQL to go with it. Now if you, if we can have it we want it. But to your point, right? I think that's why people abandoned it. it was like, hey, if we, if we give this up, we'll get some more benefits. But as the world sort of circles around and maybe technology catches up, like if we can have both, right? Because that's, I mean, we all want, I think, I think we all want it, right? If we can have it, I guess. That's, so sure. that's sort of an interesting, you know, interesting way of thinking about it. So I guess let's kind of get down to uh, single store. So, you know, obviously BigQuery, Google, you know, probably could have gone on there and been very successful for many, many years. Sounds like, you know, certainly probably be running GCP or something along those lines, but you chose not to. So, so tell me the story, like who started single store and why did you guys decide to get involved in this company? So single store was, you know, it was, you know, began its life as MemSQL. Uh, it was created by a few engineers that had left uh, left SQL Server, and you know I think they had worked at Facebook as well. Uh, and it started several years ago. It started I think actually over ten years ago. 
And, you know, they say that it takes 10 years to build a great database. And, um, and it, it took a long time to build, uh, to build it, to put the technology together. It really started as an in-memory, uh, very, very, very fast database engine that, you know, really the, the goal was, you know, we can, because we're, because everything is in memory, you can, you know, you can make things just orders of magnitude faster than you've ever seen before. Um, but then also people want to add, they want to add durability. And so you add durability, they want to add scalability. They want to be able to scale beyond what's just in, what's just in memory and kind of over time, you know, the, this kind of special purpose in, in memory database became, became something a lot more than, than just an in-memory database, it, you know, added persistence, added the ability to do analytics, uh, added ability to do a lot of these different types of, of, of workloads uh, all in the same, all in the same place. But because of the lineage as an in-memory database, it retained that laser focus on, on speed and on, on being able to do things very fast. And so uh, it was able to then do a lot of things that people thought wasn't going to be impossible, wasn't going to be possible or wasn't going to be able to scale um, because the kind of the, the way it was architected at the core was, you know, by a bunch of uh, programming, international programming competition winners that basically treated this like as a, as a, as a competition, like how much latency can you, can you squeeze out of this thing? Can you use the, like, you know, the SIMD register set to, uh, you know, to, to simplify and, and, and improve the performance of these, these vector instructions. Like there is, um, you know, some really, really fast, uh, uh, performance and fast programming, but done as the core of the engine rather than as something that gets, that gets bolted on. And, you know, I think over time as we've, you know, been able to extend, extend it, you know, separating storage and compute and adding a bunch, adding a bunch more features, uh, it is, you know, turned into a really robust, um, a really robust engine. Okay. So Uh, it's been around, you said for 10 years and then Today, if I want to use it, so what are how do I do it? Do I download and deploy it? Do I put it in my favorite cloud provider? How do I kind of get my hands on it and actually start using it? So we're a cloud database. We're available in all in the three the three main public clouds. Uh, you know the GCP, AWS, Azure. Uh, we're also available um, in in Kubernetes, so you can run it if you've got your own um, private cloud or Kubernetes cluster, you can, you can run single store, you can download, you can run on your laptop and Docker. So it's really quite versatile. And, you know, I think one of our differentiators is that it's a cloud database, but it, but it also can, can run, can run hybrid and you can run it, you know, you can run it on-prem exactly the same way that it, that it looks in the cloud. Now, if I run it in my favorite cloud provider, Azure, AWS, or GCP, are are you running it for me as a sort of a managed database, or am I uh, responsible for running it and keeping it up to date? Like, who, who owns, yes. who's doing what here? So, if you run in the in in the public cloud, um, it's database as a service. You just go to the website and you you know you sign in, you say spin up a cluster, and you spin it, and there's a cluster there, and you start typing your SQL queries. And it just, you know, it just works. And, you know, we manage, you know, if nodes go down, uh, you know, scaling up, scaling down, uh, managing the infrastructure. Okay, perfect. That's just what I like to hear. I don't have to do anything. That's what I think. That's what we all want these days. So perfect. Um, So, okay. So as we kind of get into it, and I guess, you know, it's, you kind of mentioned the kind of a little bit of everything, right? You know, SQL time series and things like that. So if I'm someone and I'm trying to figure out, you know, my data sets, you know, is, is it a good fit for, you know, single store and trying to like make sense of this, right? So what questions should I be asking myself, whether that may be like size of the data, the type of applications, like what would you sort of advise me to be thinking about? And then how would I decide if, you know, single store is, is the right place, uh, the right database service for me to be using here? So if you kind of think about the database landscape with analytics on the right and transactions on the left, Single store kind of sits in the middle. We can do both transactions and analytics. And if you need on the analytics side, if you need low latency analytics, uh, you know, real time analytics, fast dashboards, single store is a great option. We, we, you know, you can use us as a data warehouse, but you could also use us to augment a data warehouse. So we we often have customers that use single store as well as Snowflake or as well as BigQuery or as well as, as Teradata for the use cases where, they need they need lower latency. They need they need really you know fifty millisecond fifty millisecond queries. Uh, you know really fast dashboards. You know we 
one large enterprise. We run their sort of, they call it the gold dashboard that runs a thousand queries per second and all their executives look at, and it's got to be up to date. It's got to be real time uh, to understand, you know, what's my business doing right now. But so that's on the analytics side. On the transaction side, I think is an even more interesting space because, uh, you know, there's a lot of use cases where uh, an application needs to do something that may look like analytics. You know, maybe it's embedded analytics. You're showing you're showing you know graphs uh, to your to your customers, but maybe it's a leaderboard. Uh, you know, for for a game. Maybe it's uh, you know, for example, a large rideshare company uses us for kind of surge pricing, and um, you know that's something that you really need to like. You need to understand what's going out, what's going on outside of the the current user interaction, and um, and I think that's where that's where you sort of get into the kind of the analytics, um, because you know, and and the and where you know something like NoSQL has a harder time because in NoSQL really it's about you know you put an object and then you re- you retrieve you achieve the object. And when other things are, are happening in the world, in the system, it's hard for you to adjust based on based on that. And I think, you know, that sounds like quite an advanced app, but more and more these days, the things that people want to do, they want to build an interesting application that is influenced by data and is influenced by things that are things that are going on. Um, you know, one of the things that ways that people are calling this is data intensive applications and a data intensive application at the base of it is it's. It's sort of like when, when big data started, like people were like, well, what's big data? How big is big data? And I think data intensive is the same way. It's like data intensive is any application where you have a problem handling the data. Maybe it's because the data is coming in too fast. Maybe it's changing too fast. Maybe you really need high concurrency. Maybe it is, it is data scale and data size. But, you know, a data intensive application is, you know, uh, uh, a sign that you have a data intensive application is you might have you might have several databases. So a common a common case that we see is you know somebody starts with Postgres uh, because it's you know it's easy, it's free, and you, they start using Postgres and they uh, then they realize okay I want to add some semi structured data, so they add Mongo, and and then they uh, they want to do some some search over their over the history, and so they add Elasticsearch. And then it's all really slow, and they add they add Redis to it as a as a cache. And then for each one of these databases, you have to you have to add like data pipeline synchronization. You have to worry about cache consistency and cache invalidation, and um, and it gets to be it gets to be a mess. And if you want to do analytics on top of it, that's even more difficult. And you know you have to have ETL pipelines, and you you then you you spin up Snowflake. Um, you know, with single store, you just you just put it in single store. You do your full text search over single store. You do your analytics over single store. You do your semi-structured data in the single store JSON. Uh, and then you don't, you know, you don't, it's fast enough that you don't need uh, cache. So you don't need, uh, you don't need Redis. So, you know, we believe that, that this is sort of the future, the future of applications is, you know, is a single database. And so, um, and so, you know, getting back to your question of like, when do you need single store? Well, I mean, are you building a difficult application? Are you building a data intensive application? Are you building an application that you think is going to be, you're going to need to, to, to be data informed or, or, or change behavior based on, based on data? And a key, key sign is, are you using more than one database? Uh, or do you think you're going to need more than one database? And if you do, why not just start with, start with one that'll save you a lot more work in the future. So that is a fantastic value proposition. I think everyone likes, and I like your idea of like the you know, left versus right sort of transactions to all the way to um, the, the snowflakes of the world. Because so I think that's, I mean, what you just laid out there, I cannot tell you how many customers and clients I've talked to where they just you know, they outline all the databases you just said and a couple, you know, and they have a couple oracles and SQL servers to throw in as well, right? So, so it sounds great. Now, having said all that, I mean, there's probably a little bit of skepticism out there, right? Because people are always, you know, like we always hear in, in engineering, like, you know, right tool, right job, whether it's programming language or operating systems, or, you know, things are designed the right way. So kind of what's the, you know, how are you doing this behind the scenes? Like you sort of, like, it sounds great. Like it's sort of the best of everything. Uh, that said, it's, it's, that's a big challenge. So how have you delivered all of this? Is that like your technology, your your people, your process? Like, I guess, like if you will, open up the hood a little bit. Tell us how you make it happen. Sure, and that's a great question because one of the hardest things for me actually is, you know, I give that pitch to people and they're like, I don't believe you. 
Like, what are the trade-offs? And I say, there's no, there's not really a trade-off. And they say, I don't believe you. Uh, and I think, you know, you, uh, you know, as as an engineer, as a database person, you're kind of taught to believe that that you either have to choose uh, choose one or the other, and you can't tune for for both of these. And I think, you know, Michael Stonebreaker, the um, uh, the uh, Turing Award winner, he, uh, you know, he himself said, you know, there, you basically have to, to choose one or the other. Uh, this was many years ago. Then he also said, you know, the whole database industry is, is ready for a rewrite and that rewrite never really happened. And so I think single store really is one of the first databases to do that rewrite. And a lot of the more, more modern databases, you know, they didn't, they didn't actually do a rewrite. They basically took, they took Postgres and they added a new, you know, storage engine. They took MySQL and they added, they added some, some, uh, some better, better sharding, or they did some, something else to it. And uh, there's not a whole lot of databases that have been written, they're written new from scratch. And so the way, the way it works and the way that we can, we can do, we can do this in, in the same, uh, the transactions and analytics in the same place is, you know, as I mentioned, we started with uh, a very fast in-memory database. And so, you know, if you, you know, uh, suspend disbelief that we can build, you know, it's, it's not that hard to believe you can build a really fast in-memory database. Um, it's an in-memory, a fast in-memory row store. It's, uh, you know, which is great for transactions. We used, uh, you know, skip lists, which, uh, you know, is a, a data structure that uh, operates in, you know, in lock, well, we, we did it with lock-free uh, operations, which basically mean that you can get very high concurrency because because uh, you, you the locking is is incredibly incredibly granular and you don't have to block and so you know really high concurrency low latency in memory row store so uh, the next thing you want to do is you want to add persistence and so you know one of the key things in um, you know kind of modern storage architectures or modern you know server architectures is you know the the arrival of SSDs so SSDs are something like 200 times faster to do a seek than a um, uh, than uh, than a spinning spinning disk, and so uh, you don't actually have to do any seeks for this. You basically just have to do an append. So we can add persistence by just writing to a transaction log. You append to the transaction log, and the only time you need that is on writes. So now we've got a, a, a very fast transactional database, transactional row store, high concurrency, low latency. Um, incredibly fast lookups, uh, and we just have to do a single or a small number of writes to a transaction log on SSD. Um, uh, so, you know, then the next step is, 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 the, is the interesting one. The next step is basically, okay, well, you don't want to have to replay your whole log when you start up. You want to basically have snapshots of the data. And the snapshots of the data, if you put those snapshots in a column store format, then the column store is good for analytics. So column store, you can do... Um, you know, be, because because you only have to read the columns that you need, you can compress across the columns. Columns tend to be very very good for analytics. So, um, if by doing this we can get a a, a a database that supports both transactions and analytics and the queries, you know, we, we make it so that that you know we, um, you know, the queries are always consistent. Uh, and uh, the other nice thing about this is you can scale it a lot further. You can scale to um, uh, you know, this, instead of the size of memory, it's the size of the size of your SSD, and the the memory only has to be the the hot portion of the data. Um, you know, we also made it distributed, and you know, by by doing you know horizontal partitioning, etc. Uh, then the the final step, the final step is kind of the the third heat, which is you know we added uh, the third third tier of the storage hierarchy was on on Blob Store, so either S3, GCS. Or uh, or Azure Blob Storage, or you know, Ceph or Cohesity if you're on on prem, um, and be in, in just the same way we kind of had abstracted the the, the low latency, um, the latency sensitive operations from the the lower tiers of the storage hierarchy. We could do the same thing with the storage tier, and by the storage tier, then you know, basically we we store we store more snapshots on the storage tier. And a full transaction log, so we can do point in time restore, and we can also scale out the the storage sizes to you know va- basically basically infinite. Um, and so you know now we've had you know virtually infinite um, storage sizes, but also we can get the, almost the same latency that we had when it was just an in memory row store. So okay, I guess that was that was a long that was a long uh, a long description, but 
Um, you know, that's that's basically to me that's the secret to to, to how single store can 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 solve the the problem of transactions and analytics in the same. Place. No, I, I I it was a long answer, but I think it's good. I mean, it's, I think you know, sort of like the transaction log to the columns to the blob store, right? So I think you know, and um, to your point, like you know, I, I don't know, I, don't, I will never say I'm a database expert, but you're right. I think many people would say like, yeah, adding on things to Postgres and things like that is sort of like has been an approach. So you certainly have taken, you know, a, I don't know, a fresh approach, if you will, sort of like looking at it from the ground up, which is you know, not every, not all these database solutions have done that. So let's, you know, of course we have to talk about Kubernetes, you know, we're a cloud podcast, like we're just required. That's by law. We have, otherwise we'll, we'll lose our pod, a cloud podcast license. But I think, you know, you mentioned it earlier, but maybe just touch on it for those that either are deep running their own Kubernetes for whatever reason on premise, you know, one of our favorite distributions, um, how, and you mentioned that you, I think you said it'd be deployed in the container. So maybe just touch on how does that deployment look like? So if I wanted to use it, how would I be, you know, what would I do to set it up? So Kubernetes is like, I can use a uh, single store as my, my database. Sure. So when we, when we run single store in the cloud, we're using Kubernetes and we're using the same Kubernetes operator that, that we ship to our customers. And so we're building a lot of the intelligence for how to run single store inside this, this Kubernetes that we can also, that we can also ship. So, um, you know, the, the same monitoring, the same, the same operations that our SRE, that's our SRE team is doing are the same. It's the same thing that the, that customers that are using using our Kubernetes operator are going to are going to get, and so you know you have, um, you know, uh, you know high level operations like you know adding a node and 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 scaling it up and scaling it down, um, and uh, and this you know generally can can fit into uh, a customer's a customer's Kubernetes environment. You know, I I say that with a little bit of a you know asterisk just because there's a lot of you know there are some different ways Kubernetes ends up getting, getting deployed and somebody has, you know, version X and somebody has version Y and somebody has this storage system and this, somebody has this other storage system. But I think one of the nice things about single store is because, because it was started as an on-prem, you know, with an on-prem database, it, uh, it worked with almost no dependencies. And so, you know, the only dependency um, you know, was basically you had some SSD and you had some you had some memory and some some network and you know the better those those the better and the bigger those things were, the faster it was going to be and the better it was going to run. But the, you know the the differences between our on-prem customers' environments, hardware environments, were are far more different than the differences between the the different cloud providers' environments. And so that's been one of the ways that we've been able to to work you know, effectively across so many different, so many different cloud providers. So, you know, if you want, if you want a, uh, if you want the separation of storage and compute, if you want the, you know, we call it uh, in, you know, unlimited storage, uh, that third tier of the storage stack, you know, you do need a, an S3 compatible object store, which, you know, not everybody, not everybody has in their, in their data center. Um, but if you're running it in the, you know, if you wanted to run it in the cloud in your own, you know, if you're running in, you know, Anthos or, you know, GKE or AKE, uh, you know, you can just, you can just deploy it, but probably if you're running it on, 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 on a cloud, it's just going to be easier for the, for you to use the, uh, the single store managed service. But yeah, it, no, so definitely. for some customers, it can be nice if you're running, you know, for instance, like a single store instance for each one of your customers, like you're running a SaaS business, uh, it can be, you know, you can use, you know, you can automate through Kubernetes a lot more easily than you could, um, you know, using another another provider. Okay, and then the other one I always want to bring up because it's it, you know it's either the next big thing or it's it's already passe serverless, right? So depending on who you, who you talk to, but it sounds like pretty straightforward here, right? I could just use if I wanted to, right? I can make serverless you know calls in and then call into your managed database just like anything else. Am I, seems pretty simple. Am I missing anything? Anything special if I decide to use single store and serverless together? Yeah, so I mean, if you're doing sort of the you know Amazon, the uh, AWS Lambda or Google Cloud Functions type type programming model where you you know you event programming uh, and it's calling into a database, and we have a we have a data API, so you know there's a REST API framework so that you can you know basically call call into uh, into that, and um, you know the other side of serverless is well, do you want the database to be serverless? And that really requires sort of like seamless scaling up and scaling down. Um, and we do, you know, currently um, we don't automatically scale up and scale down based on based on 
customer load. That is something that we are we are adding in the in the near future. Um, you know, so for, you know, in the meantime, you'll have to kind of call an API to just to, to scale it up or or scale it down. Uh, and you could put your own controller on there that you know said you know when when CPU gets this high, then then scale it up. But that's that's a pain, and nobody wants to do that. And so we will be we'll be you know giving giving you the controls. Okay, good good to know. All right, so that's good to know. And then you know the other thing is you kind of talked about earlier is you know everyone and I've, I think a lot of people listening to this are in the situation where they work somewhere where they have a lot of different databases, and typically they've got some Oracle, they've got some SQL Server. MySQL, list can go on and on. Now, if I wanted to, you know, migrate some of these databases to single stores, one, is that a good idea to start there? And then two, is there any help you can help um, provide when I, if I wanted to do some type of migration to single store? Uh, so we have a couple of partners that we that we use uh, that help people migrate to, to single store, uh, this company called Blitz. Um, but one of the nice things about single store is that it, it is MySQL wire compatible, and you know, uh, and you know, MySQL data type compatible, and so there's anything that that is designed to work with MySQL and to move data in and out of MySQL will just work with single store. Um, so things like things like DBT, you know, will work with single store, and and you know, your favorite your favorite BI tool works with works with single store, and and so uh, in general, it's pretty easy to to, to get data in and out. Uh, you know, I mentioned the, the sort of the augment idea before, which is uh, which is really useful in doing in doing migration. So, in my previous my previous you know life when I was at at Google, you know, we really focused on okay, you go into some you know enterprise enterprise database, you know, we'll take out this giant database that you've built all your all of your workloads around, you know, for for a decade, and you've got thousands of stored procedures, and it's it's incredibly difficult to to sort of do these lift and shifts, and I think companies were spending literally hundreds of millions of dollars to to do these to do these migrations, and they weren't all they weren't always successful even after after that all that time. One of the things about single store that we like to do is you know we call it augment. We go in and we basically say, hey, we'll stand us in front of your your database, put us you know because we're very good at landing data, we're very good at kind of um, at, you know, streaming data in, so you can do kind of real-time real time analytics or, or real-time updates. So if you put single store in front of your database and, um, and then kind of push the data back to, to, your, to your database, you can, you, can then, uh, you can then start moving things over at your own rate. And you know, if you like single store and you want to put more workloads onto single store, hey, we think that's great. If you don't, if you want to just use it as a low latency, you know, low latency buffer or low latency cache, you know, that that also that also works. You know, there was a customer that was using us for payment processing on, you know, they had an Oracle database and they um, you know, there were a whole bunch of different steps. They landed it in single store, they could do all those, all those steps, and then they pushed the final result back to their back to their Oracle. Uh, you know, over time, we think that you know they may not need that that Oracle, but also we know how hard it is to to replace Oracle and replace some of these other databases in uh, in an enterprise. So you got a little database strangler pattern kind of going there, right? Kind of put it in the front end <laughs> and slowly push out the. Well, I mean, everyone wants to get rid of Oracle license. Well, not everyone. A lot of people want to get rid of Oracle license. I mean, hey, if you work in this industry, you've heard that question. So I mean, nobody. I'm not breaking any news by saying that. So I think, uh, and you're right. I do think many people like kind of want to slowly put it in and prove that it works. And some of these databases, to your point too, like they're never leaving. It's like they're just too wired into a company. So that's that's all um, very impressive. And also heard. I'm just going to say like. And let me just, this is maybe the simplest, uh, you know, migration. I know people sort of think it's funny, but like, it sounds like I could just do a simple, can I just basically do a backup of my SQL database and a restore into single store? Like that's sort of like the no brain simple, simplest way to do it. Would that work? Can I do it? I would love it if that would work. Maybe we should figure figure out how to make that work, but that doesn't that doesn't quite work. But you can do kind of a MySQL dump, and then you can import it into and uh, import it. Okay, all right. Well, that's pretty close. I mean, that's you know, um, I, I've done I've been a part of various database projects, and sometimes it is just comes down to like backup and restore with just different tools. That's you know, but again, it doesn't sound as cool when you say you're doing a migration okay. versus when I'm just doing a backup and a restore with a slightly different tool. But don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone that we didn't make it uh, as complicated. Well, the other stuff that you know everyone always wants to know about is. You know, if you're in the cloud, database security. So what's your, you know, how do you secure all this data? How are you protecting it? You know, what, what, what's, what's your solution to that? 
So, you know, I think when we, first of all, we take security incredibly seriously that, you know, as a, as a, you know, a company that makes its living in the cloud, you know, a, you don't want to, you don't want to screw up. And so you, you overinvest in the, in the security area. And, um, and so, you know, we have, uh, you know, a, a lot of, you know, the kind of best, best practices, um, security compliances from, um, uh, you know, SOC 2 and, uh, and ISO 27001 and, uh, and HIPAA uh, that are all important for, um, you know, for enterprise customers, but also just sort of, if you think about what those actually, those actually involve the kind of the, the way you have to, to, to do your software uh, development cycle, the way you have to, you know, limit who can access, you know, who can deploy and, and, uh, and how your, how your business has to work. You know, we, um, you know, we kind of take those things and we, and we, and, uh, you know, we take, take those very, uh, you know, very seriously. Sometimes actually engineers, the engineers complain. It's like, well, I want to, it'd be so much easier if I could just, you know, you know, jump in and debug something and, and, you know, you have to go through some more kind of security hurdles to be able to, to do that. But, you know, we use, you know, we use encryption at rest and encryption between, um, you know, over the, over the network and support for SSL and, um, you know, Kerberos and uh, lots of those, uh, lots of those types of things. And we have a lot of security features that are, that are also on the way that, uh, you know, that our customers have been, have been asking for. Okay. And then I know that you were also just recognized in the Gardner Magic Quadrant. So I think you were named a leader. Is that correct? If I, do I have that information correct? Um, we were, we were on the Gard, Gardner Cloud Database's Magic Quadrant, which we were incredibly proud of because, you know, that's, it puts you in a very small set of, um, of companies that, that are doing kind of, I think the, the relevant, you know, the relevant work, the relevant, you know, databases, they're building, building databases in the cloud. Um, I think that's why Gardner, they collapsed their, their, their various database managed or magic quadrants into a single one. And they said, anybody that's not cloud is not going on there. And, um, and they combine transactions and analytics. And I think we're at a really sweet spot because we can do transactions and analytics. And many of the, the companies that were on there, the way they do transactions and analytics is they have many different databases. And, you know, as somebody who just has one, it's like, I think it's a pretty powerful statement to say, hey, you can use, uh, you know, you can use Aurora and you can use Redshift and you can use uh, RDS and you can use, uh, you know, Dynamo and you can use all these other databases uh, or you can use in their, in their elastic, manage Elasticsearch, et cetera, or you could just use single store. And like, yeah, um, sounds good. And, you know, yes, Amazon was a little bit, AWS is a little bit higher than we were on the, on the MQ, but, you know, we can, we at least we'll have somewhere to, uh, to, to shoot for. All right, well, that's good. Well, we'll make sure to put a link into that so people can check it out. I know people always want to see some third-party research and, you know, I know what it takes just to submit an MQ. So kudos to you, just getting through that. It's <laughs> a lot of, uh, it's a lot of spreadsheets and information. You know what we need to do? We need to get Gardner on a database so we don't have to submit all these spreadsheets. But that's a topic for another <laughs> podcast for sure. That's um, a great idea. But more importantly, you know, we've talked a lot about it, but I think, you know, there's nothing that really trans, nothing better than trying it yourself. So uh, do you have a free trial? Like how can people kind of get hands on keyboards and like try it with their own stuff? There is a free trial. Um, there's, there's, you can actually do two, there's two different options. You know, one is we have uh, $500 worth of free credits. So if you just go to single store, you say start a, you know, spin up a cluster, you'll get, you'll get $500 worth of free credits, uh, which basically means you can run it for free for a month. We also have a downloadable version. And so you can download it, run it on your laptop, run it in Docker, and that's that's free forever. And so if you want to just have something that runs in your laptop, um, you know, you can you can do that um, as uh, to your heart's content. And that's a way to kind of get get started, you know, figure out the the pipelines syntax and load some data and and see how it works. And then when you want to deploy it, you can, you know, spin up a, a managed service cluster and and off you go. All right. Well, that, that all sounds good. And I know we have a lot of uh, active uh, people trying out databases. So I'll just invite someone. Someone try it all out, and then they can put it in the software to find talk to Slack. They can tell everyone, you know, <laughs> did it work or did it not? Um, and we'll, you know, kind of get some real-time information. All right. Well, it's been very impressive. You obviously know yourself about databases. But I'm the most important thing I want to ask you is the following is that, 
maybe the most important thing that I've heard that you've done is you've finished a marathon under three hours. Is this true? It's because you said it was uh, 10 years to build a great database, something like that. So, mm-hmm. so how long and how long do you have to train to finish a marathon in under three hours? It took me a couple of years to, uh, to, to get to that, to get to that point. But, um, you know, it's, uh, it's especially hard if you're not a natural runner and, um, and I'm not necessarily a natural runner, but it's just a lot of, a lot of hard work, a lot of like, a lot of, you know, long mornings and, uh, and, you know, giving up your whole Sunday to, to, uh, procrastinate about running and then to run and then to recover from running. Um, and, uh, it, you know, takes, um, you know, I had a gracious spouse who, uh, you know, did, never, never complained that I, you know, needed to needed to go out for a run when we were on vacation, or I needed to book a hotel that was close to a running trail so that uh, I could actually get my get my run in. But um, yeah, it's, you know, running is a great way to, you know, especially for, you know, if you're a software engineer and somebody who's like, uh, for, who may have trouble turning off, you know, you, you're kind of, you always have these background threads, designs and, and okay, how do I do this and solving bugs and stuff for me, running was a way to kind of turn off those background threads and just sort of be kind of in the moment and, um, you know, and having a, having a goal, like running, you know, running a marathon was, was, was a great way to kind of force yourself to, to, to do that. Um, and to make sure you, you know, make sure you didn't, didn't skip the, uh, um, you know, the, some of the workouts. Well, fantastic. It sounds a great achievement. So kudos to you. I've never even come close. So I'm, you know, I'm sort of in awe of that. If, uh, if not everything else that you've done here. So if someone wants to contact you and maybe they want to learn more about single store, or I don't know, maybe they want to learn about marathon running, uh, what's the best way to find you online? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, you know, Jordan, Jordan Tagani, uh, you can tweet at me or, um, uh, I, you know, happy to, happy to hear from anybody who wants to know more about, about, uh, about single store or about, uh, you know, we're, we're hiring, we're hiring engineers, we're hiring, you know, lots of different roles, uh, database people, backend people, et cetera. Um, but, you know, I'd love to, love to hear from people. All right. Well, I'll put, make sure that I put your LinkedIn, your Twitter, and maybe we can put a couple, uh, job posts in the tw- in the uh, software defined talk slack we'll put a couple uh, links here because you know everyone's always out looking for jobs and we can check that out so well thanks a lot for coming on the show really appreciate it thank you really appreciate you having me and for everyone else i just want to let you know if this is the first time you've uh, ever listened to software defined talk well welcome really appreciate you being here you can uh, probably subscribe right now in the podcast player you're listening to or you can go to softwaredefinedtalk.com. There you'll find the Slack, all of our social medias, links to subscribe. You name it, we've got it. And we'll even send you a sticker. So all you have to do is send your postal address to uh, stickers at softwaredefinedtalk.com. And I will be happy to send you a sticker anywhere in the world. And with that, thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you next time.